We've got two authors and a very busy show today. So here we go. The issue of asylum and those seeking asylum remains one of the most challenging, if not controversial issues, not just for Australia, but globally. The implications of those seeking asylum are profound. Zana Freilon addresses this issue in her novel, The Bone Sparrow. So Zana, welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What made you take up this issue of asylum seekers? Um, well, you know, this has been an issue in Australia and also globally for a very long time now. Um, I actually got the idea for The Bone Sparrow well, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, and it was really based on the immigration policies we have in this country uh, and... The de facto white Australia policy. Ab absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're here as part of Refugee Week, a week where we celebrate the contribution of refugees mm. to our country and acknowledge the amazing... Um, what, sorry, I'm, go on. Yeah, no, no, sorry. What would have happened if the indigenous people had turned back the boats? That's what I want to know. Well, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But we should, you know, get onto this novel in in some ways. You've written it's young adult fiction. It is really, and you've set it in a detention centre, yeah. uh, a sort of generic detention centre, shall we say. Now, Subi is the central character, and his situation is unique. It is. Well, Subi uh, is nine years old and he was born in the detention centre. So the only world he knows is the one inside those razor wire fences. Well, the implications go beyond that, though, mm. really. What are they? Well, they do. I mean, he has no idea of the wider world. Um, he has no sense of uh, his past, really, and he has no sense of his future either because he's there indefinitely. So he doesn't know when he'll be released, if he will ever be released. Um, he's there with his mother and sister who have both had very traumatic lives um, and, you know, surrounded by people with mental illness um, and in a stuck in a place where, you know, there's a distinct lack of education and other facilities as well. Well, that, that mental illness is part and parcel of the fact that they have no future. Uh, for Subi, he has no past in many ways, no memory, no foundation, a cultural foundation other than the detention centre. Yeah, that's right. And Subi's really, um, he's almost obsessed with stories and storytelling and he finds stories wherever he can and he asks everyone in the camp to tell them his story and he really holds on to that to sort of uh, get a sense of his world. Well, that's very significant, that that uh, mention of story, because this is a, a multi-layered story in mm. many ways. What have you done? Um, well, there's uh, a lot to do with Subi's imagination, and I think imagination is probably Subi's greatest strength, because he's able to imagine a future for himself that isn't inside the detention centre, and that's all based on stories he hears and snippets of stories he hears. And quite early on, you find out that uh, Subi's mother doesn't really tell him stories anymore and she's sort of lost hope and she's become quite depressed. Well, that, that storytelling is part of that cultural tradition that enables a culture to survive, thrive, grow, develop. Absolutely. It's, it's been denied in the detention centre. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, if you look at the detention centres and uh, what's happening in there, everything's being denied. You know, there's the whole... Every human right is being denied to these people. Um, I was reading, uh, going through a book with one of my kids the other day about uh, the rights of the child. It was one we found in the bookshelf. And it struck me that almost every single right of the child is being contravened by what we're doing by locking up these kids in detention. Why are we doing it? 
I don't understand. Uh, that's a, neither do I. I. You know, I, I wish I could understand it, but, but it's, it's... There are broader implications here, and we're sort of slipping off the story a little, but mm. in many ways it's the reason why you're telling the Absolutely. story to get the reader to, to think about these issues. Does it say something about who we are as Australians? Uh, it definitely does. And also, you know, it's not... It's certainly, the bone sparrow is set in Australia, and this is certainly a huge Australian issue, but it's also a wider global issue as well. Well, putting that in perspective, Australia, the wider global issue, it seems to me that Australia is taking a parochial attitude, uh, you know, looking at sort of tens of thousands of people. The global issue is... What are the numbers involved in Yeah, I think the latest uh, figures are 65.3 million displaced, forcibly displaced people globally at the moment. So basically Australia's not pulling its weight. No, they're not doing anything. You know, 12,000 yeah. people, it's, it's hey, a drop whoa. in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and yet we're taking a parochial attitude, limiting access, uh, being bloody-minded, mm. when in fact the problem is much, much larger and we should be doing something as a people. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, one of the more important issues as well is the way it's been hidden from the general public. You know, the detention centres are offshore mostly. Um, those that are onshore are very remote. Um, access is being denied to the UN, to journalists, although a current affair perhaps is, is going, oh. I hear. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's really hard to get any information about what's happening there. There's the new... Um, whistleblower laws, which can see people jailed for up to two years if they say what's going on. Um, and especially in relation to the treatment of children, you know, in Australia we have mandatory reporting of any mm. abuse of children, and yet if you and report And yet we're it, abusing children. Exactly. Literally. And if you report, and you're not allowed to report it there, otherwise you can be jailed. So... Um, there are hopeful signs in this book. Subi's imagination. Is Shakespeare a duck? What's yes. <laughs> Shakespeare Doug. Yeah, people keep talking about him. He's great. Well, it's a sort of toy. Uh, well, a little floating toy. A rubber duck. A yes. rubber duck. But it's it's what children do. And this duck sort of talks to him or he imagines conversations. Mm. Perfectly natural yeah. in, in many ways, that, that development uh, of ideas. So he's still got that um, imaginative potential. But you've also got him helping uh, Jimmy. If you just want to... Give us some background into Jimmy and then the help Subi provides. Sure. So Jimmy uh, is, she does not live in the detention centre. She lives in the remote rural community outside the detention centre. Uh, and Jimmy's mother has died um, and she lives with her father and brother, but um, she spends a lot of time on her own. And uh, like many kids in remote areas, um, there's a, she doesn't have much access to education. And so uh, that together with her own issues has meant that she's unable to read. She's about the same age, she's about 10. Uh, and one day or one night she wanders down to the detention centre and she finds a way inside and she meets up with Subi. Uh, and Jimmy carries with her a book of her mother's stories which she knows her mum's written down and they're her own past and her own tale but she can't read them. Uh, but Subi can. Subi can. So Subi is fulfilling a sort of um, support role? Absolutely. And, and yet the They support each other. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, definitely. And, you know, they, they sort of come to see um, how much they really need each other. And, in fact, Subi saves Jimmy's life at one point. Yeah, he does. The irony of that? Well, I mean, there is irony in that, but then also I think Jimmy also saves Subi in many ways. So mm. um, 
the role's certainly reciprocal. Yeah, the the interplay there. You've got this image of the bone sparrow. Mm. Could you give us more information on that? Sure. So um, the bone sparrow is a necklace which Jimmy wears around her neck and it's a sparrow that has been made from bone. Um, and that was also her mother's and it's been passed down through the generations as sort of a lucky talisman. But then there's sort of a the significance of the sparrow as well, just filling in some of the background. Subi's part of the Rohingya community yes, from Myanmar, Burma. Uh, and they have a... Um, a cultural, um, what would you say, idea about sparrows, and there's something that happens there as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, I don't know actually if that is um, specifically Rohingya tradition, although that was it's something as I, I found in various places. But at one point in time, a sparrow lands on Subi's bed, um, and his sister tells him that that's an omen of death. Uh, and then Jimmy tells him, actually, it's not that at all, that it's it's a sign of rebirth and new beginnings. Mm. And then that that um, talisman then, the, the bone sparrow, uh, we develop traditions. We um, that, that sort of connection that, that give uh, life, ideas, um, progression, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Where did you get your information from about detention centres? Because, as I said, it, it's generic, it is. It was. I wanted to. Um, it's, so it's a. It, it's a fictitious detention centre, but it's based on uh, Nauru and Manus Island. And I did that deliberately because I wanted us to really be aware that just because we're putting these in different countries and different places, they're still our responsibility. And it's just the same as if it was on, you know, on Australian land. So um, I did that quite deliberately. And most of the information I got from media reports, documentaries. Um, when I started my research, there was a lot more readily available on the internet. Um, I actually pulled up a whole lot of uh, incident reports early on, um, which had been released from the detention centres. They had stuff heavily redacted, but it was really clear the kind of situation these people were in. I've since gone back and tried to find them, and you know I can't find them anywhere. But is there a reason for that? Do you think, or that you can't find them? Or I'm, I'm sure they've been taken down. Um, for whatever whatever reason, um, they might still be available somewhere. You also then have uh, certain implications for those working in detention centres, and I think there are implications for us as citizens as well, but you have characters like Harvey and Beaver. Beaver becomes incredibly malicious mm. uh, in his behaviour, and Harvey, you've got a kind sort of uh, figure there, but he becomes implicated in a murder. Yeah. I mean, that was that was hard because I know that a lot of people who go to work in these places go with the absolute the right intentions they want to help, but there are also people there who are employed um, for no other reason than they thought it would be a quick way to earn money or a good job. Um, i just seen Chasing Asylum, which is a fantastic documentary uh, about the detention centres. And in there it's made very clear that a whole lot of people went to work as social workers and they'd never had anything to do with refugees or asylum seekers before. Um, and they were told that, you know, you'd get good money and that it's a beautiful place, you can have fun. Um, and these people were stuck in a position where they had no idea how to help these people uh, and no idea what to do. But when you're also in a situation where your job is to repress people, yeah, there are psychological studies which show what that does to the individual. Absolutely. And in fact, there's a fantastic Guardian article um, just recently, in the last few days, uh, and spoke about 
I hope I'm getting his name right here, Paul Stevenson, who's a traumatologist, and he's worked in the aftermath of huge disasters, tsunamis, Bali bombings, everything. And he said that uh, what he saw in the detention centres was the worst atrocity he's ever seen. And uh, he, he was taken there to work with the guards and help them through uh, their own emotional issues. Um, but then he also worked with the asylum seekers themselves and he said the worst part of it was that there was no hope because being there indefinitely, you don't have a future. Mm. Just one last quick question before we have to uh, finish. Then the implications for us as Australians. Yeah, and I think, you know, if, if the Bone Sparrow does nothing else, I hope it, it just reminds people that... Um, when we see the statistics and the numbers, just to remember that these are people, you know, they're people mm. who've had their voices silenced and their futures stolen. And, you know, if we can imagine a different way, then we need to just work our way towards that. The book is The Bone Sparrow, the author, Zana Freilon, and it's a challenging issue, but in fact, I think it's one we need to address, and perhaps it's for the next generation in some ways about the attitudes they develop. Absolutely. towards these sorts of questions. Susanna, thank you for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm going to start by reading something out of an acknowledgement of Sue Williams' book, and it is, It also seems appropriate to mention the Australian government, who, no matter who they are this week, remain an unwavering source of inspiration. Now, we're not going to go as seriously as the asylum seekers, but welcome back, Sue Williams. Thanks, Jane. Sue Williams is, has written a, a crime novel, and uh, her last book was titled Murder with the Lot. This one, Dead Men Order Flake, or Don't Order Flake. There's a hint of takeaways here. Why is that? Well, absolutely. The takeaway, Cass's takeaway, the Rusty Boar takeaway, is central to the story because that is Cass's home. She lives in Rusty Ball, population 147, um, and she runs this takeaway like clockwork, but she's also a part-time private investigator. Well, yes, we know from the last book, because this is the second book, that Cass Tuplin is a young widow with adult sons. Now, she got pregnant to Piro, as Sue Williams has written, a rebound one-night stand turned into a more permanent arrangement thanks to his overactive fertility. So who was Cass on the rebound from? Well, it's shown in this book that she's on the rebound from Leo Stone, who's the man who turns up in the opening chapter of the book. And he is the man who is not dead, who is ordering flake. Dead men don't order flake. Dead men don't order flake. But that's exactly what Leo Stone asked me for when he walked in through my shop door. With gladiator shoulders. Absolutely. (laughs) Superhero blonde hair. (laughs) Now, there's many stories about Leo and guns and his life in the Congo. Who's checking out his identity? Well, that's um, kind of coming down to Cass's son, Dean. Mm. Her eldest son is Senior Constable Dean Tuplin, who is perhaps not the most imaginative of police officers, but he's extremely thorough. And he is actually based loosely on a policeman I met once, crossing a small and perfectly safe laneway in Melbourne, and this man decided to book me for jaywalking and charged me 60 bucks and gave me a whole big lecture. And I thought, you're going in my fiction. (laughs) The great joy of being a writer. (laughs) Well, Leo Stone isn't the only thing Dean is warning his mother about. You know, he's the policeman and she is curious and she's got a talent for investigation. In fact, she is, quote a celebrated but non-licensed investigator. You know, not having that licence, that upsets Dean incredibly. But what does Gary Callant 
want her to investigate. Well, Gary has phoned Cass wanting to, her to investigate the death of his daughter, Natalie, who was a young journalist in Muddy Soak, and she has died in a car crash on a notorious black spot nearby. And the police investigation says, well, she was speeding, it was just a crash, it was just an accident, but Gary's absolutely convinced there's more to it than that, and he thinks that somebody deliberately um. arranged that accident. And nope. much to Dean's disappointment, Cass starts to investigate, um, really because she feels sorry for him. He's got tears in her eyes. She's always been a sucker for a guy in tears. And, um, and Dean's little... view is that an unlicensed private investigator is basically just a stalker mum. Oh, a stalker. <laughs> now, we need some geography. You've told us about um, Rusty Boar and how it's only got 167 people. Two, if you drove through Hustle and 200 kilometres further on from Rusty Boar, there's Muddy Soak. So how is Rusty Boar and Muddy Soak different? Okay, well, well Rusty Boar is very much a Mallee town, so mm. that's northwestern Victoria. Think of wheat belt, big skies, silos, and the kind of small town that you might pass through on the way to Mildura. Um, <clears throat> and seen better days, definitely. It's the former home of the Mallee farm days. That's their claim to fame. They lost those in 1991. Mm to hustle the town down the road who steals everything, even the design of the public toilets, which Cass refuses to use on principle, no matter how badly she needs to go. And Muddy Soak is kind of the edge of the gold field. So think of places like Bendigo and mm. Beaufort and all their beautiful heritage buildings and their gorgeous autumn trees. And they've just basically got everything that Rusty Ball should yeah. have. Oh, absolutely. They've got wealthy families too. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's the band. A lot of crime. With the big house on the hill and the Fitzgeralds. This whole family family well the mother she, she runs the newspaper there's Irene the daughter who she used to be engaged, engaged to Leo Stone yes there's a bit of a bad story oh, there oh yes mm, yes interrupted. Bit of embarrassment mm. for Cass and uh, son Andy Andy Fitzgerald state minister for innovation but he's a climate denier and rather fish violent. Now, we'll go back to um, the mum who owns the local newspaper. In these local newspapers, I'm sure people know them, you, you actually want good news stories, don't you? Yeah, look, that's really, that, that's the great pressure, I think, for country newspapers. I have an aunt who uh, once was an editor of a country newspaper. I grew up in the country, but the other end of the state to Rusty Ball in Gippsland. And there is a lot of pressure on country news to try and pr make everything sound lovely. Um, so, you know, they're kind of they're an advocate for the for the town, for the area. They generally know their readers personally, many of them, and it's it's very hard to get a bad news story into a country paper. Yeah, but Natalie, she she died there on Jensen's Corner, and she was writing a story, and then they, she then Cass, our, our investigator, finds out that there was also another death a week later in the same corner, Will Galling. What did he blog about? Well, he had a blog called Unsmog Oz and he wrote about environmental issues. And uh, he had been working on a story about wind farms mm. prior to, to the accident. Um, but there aren't a lot of wind farms around Rusty Ball, but there is an ex-solar farm. So there's something underhand going on involving renewable energy, solar farms and fracking licences. Thankfully, Cass has got a younger son, Brad, who's got knowledge in this area, but he's in trouble himself. He is. Brad's turned 
up at home unexpectedly. He's He's been away at uni, which has been fantastic. He started a course in marine biology in Warrnambool. And, uh, but he's turned up home unexpectedly and there's something going on, something serious that he doesn't want to talk to Cass about. No, but she has to take flake off the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Unsustainable. <laughs> in Rusty Boar, everybody knows each other. We learn that Bamford's, another, doing another quote, bought that couple of rockier shit paddocks from Graham's Stone for a song, told Stone this whole sob story how it was for his cousin's starving sheep. He knew there was a fortune in crushed rock lying underneath those paddocks. And of course, Peter Bamford is the granite king. So we're wondering, is Leo, we know he's got some idea, he's got some connection with guns from the Congo. Is he is he doing all this? Is he part of the revenge? And then we have the humour. There is so much hot sexual tension going on. They've definitely got unfinished business, those two. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's lovely quotes like... Um, Cass being a mother and, and having this real problem of worrying about her sons. And, and this is lovely. Kids, why would you have them? Would there ever be a day when I could stop worrying about Dean and Brad? For the first time in my life, I realised there might actually be an upside to dementia. <laughs> if I forgot who the boys were, there'd be half a chance I could forget to agonise over them as well. <laughs> the only upside I've ever seen of dementia. But um, she has got a, um, a very good friend, her old guardian, Ernie, who's in um, a, a nursing home. And what's the name of this nursing home? The Garden of the Gods Extended Care <laughs> Nursing Home in Hustle. Yes, well, he's choosing to be forgetful, which is just so funny. So we've got uh, so many of the times that Cass, you know, sort of, and Leo nearly get together, nearly get together. But... With small towns and um, muddy soak is such a one that it has lots of festivals. It does. It's a, it's a place of non-stop festivals. The Yabia Scravaganza, the Turning Leaf Spectacular, wow. the Fermentation Magnificence. They just get a little bit carried away with they, the uh, titles of those festivals. But this, and in those brochures, they never mention their out-of-control crime levels. Not no, once. No, no. But it's on the Turning Leaf Spectacular that Cass feels like she's kind of like the famous five. She's going back to um, to Muddy Soak and Cass is looking for the killer, Brad, her son, with her because he doesn't want her killed. Ernie, looking for his lost watch. Madison, who wants to go to the vet. Now, if you know the famous five, there's always Timmy the dog, but... Madison doesn't have a Timmy the dog. Which no, got? Madison has a whole business of ferrets. I think that's the official term for a group of ferrets, a business. A business and, of ferrets. Um, and she's got Timmy with her because he's got an injured leg and he needs to go to the vet. So we have Timmy the ferret. When you're reading this book, and I hope you do because it's very, very amusing, have a look at the ferrets' names. You might see a connection there with uh, spouses of... Well... Of, of partners of prime ministers. <laughs> <laughs> Timmy is a ferret who's just very comfortable with who he is and he's the only male. <laughs> Look, humour. This one tickled my uh, fancy too. This is this is just another look at by um, Cass who's just driving down the highway and uh, a comment from Sue Williams, the author. I passed a chicken farm. A flock of cockatoos flew overhead. I wondered for a moment if chooks ever look up at passing flocks like that and wish. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? 
At the very beginning, I quoted something from Sue Williams in the acknowledgements about the Australian government because this is Sue's second book and it's quite different to the first one. It brings in a lot more policy and, uh, well, perhaps policy. Yes, well, people often um, ask me, was it difficult to write the second book because there's this idea that second novel syndrome, it's difficult to write your second one. And I think in some ways that can be true because your first novel really is you're pulling on your entire life and so you've got your whole life, really, to write it. And, and with your second one, you've, you kind of feel like you've used up all your best lines, your best jokes, all your material. It's all gone. My God, what are you going to write? And all your grievances as well, because the grievances are really important to authors, especially ones who write satire, because it has to come from a place of anger. But luckily, fortunately, with the kind of governments that we've had in the last few years, I've just had this new <laughs> array of grievances that I've been able to air in this second book. It's made it really easy to write. Thank you, guys. Do, do we actually have policies from these uh, <laughs> our parties at the moment? That's what I'm oh, wondering. I'm just going back to your author, Zane. Can you, Zane? Sorry, can you think of anything humorous in asylum seeking? Uh, not really. No. <coughs> sorry, no. I wasn't ready to talk. Um, not really, not at all. No, sorry, no. no. <laughs> that, that's the challenge. Yeah, yeah that, to, that, to look at it. I mean, I mean you look, look at the it. chaser, and and we do political satire, I think, very well in Australia on TV, especially. And I think satire comes from a place of anger, from a sense of injustice that there's these injustices that need to be fixed. And obviously, there are writers who write seriously about these injustices, like you have, mm. Sana. Well, but I others, mean, others send them up. Going into Absolutely. going into satire, it was Jonathan Swift when there was the Great Potato Famine in Ireland that suggested, um, in his modest proposal, that we should eat the Irish babies as a means of getting rid of the excess. I mean, that, that's the extent to which you have to go with the asylum seeker debate um, to make people aware of just how ludicrous. Uh, the whole thing is. And like you said, I mean, there are so many people that do it so well, the Chaser, um, Sean McAuliffe, you know, and mm. all those things. And they do. They really discuss the issues in ways that, um, that you know, it, it, I guess it's satire in its greatest sense because they're so hideous and so horrible that, you know, sometimes it's the only way you can look at it. Well, um, going back to Sue Williams here about a book, a book Dead Men Don't Order Flake, what, what she's done here with the satire is she's she has her son, um, the Cass's Cass's son, Brad, knows lots and lots and lots about how to use technology. And Cass, she's just curious and cares for people. That's what she wants to fix. That's things, right. Yeah, Cass finds it really difficult to disappoint people, to say no to people. And so she takes on these jobs, which, you know, arguably she shouldn't. Well, Dean certainly argues oh, she shouldn't. Yes. I like your, your, your whole feel that you hated that policeman so much that you're making us hate <laughs> Dean. And we know Dean really wants to be a mathematician, but we are, <laughs> next book, maybe. So is uh, Cass Tuplin going to make a way into more, solve more mysteries out of Rusty Boar? Yeah, I'm working on a third one at the moment. It's called Live and Let Fry, because uh, Showbag, <laughs> the locals, decided she's Rusty Boar's answer to James Bond. Um, and yeah, Cass is back in the saddle investigating more... Issues. But you know what comes out of fish and chip shops? Talking about satire, we had a politician come out of a fish and chip shop. Poor, poor exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and maybe back in again. Cass never <laughs> likes that comparison. <laughs> she says there are thousands of fish and chip shop operators in the country who have no connection with, with Pauline Hanson, and she has sullied our good name. <laughs> <laughs> Battered it one way. So. Oh dear, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I was speaking with Sue Williams about her, her book, Dead Men Don't Order Flake. And text. I 
publishing. And, and I was talking <laughs> designer Freylon about The Bone Sparrow, which is released by Hashay. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.